Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I will be your host today. And today, our guest is my good friend, Kat Lee. Kat is one of the most experienced consumer tech growth executives probably of the last decade or two. She's held leadership positions at both Facebook and Pinterest really early on in those companies and had a lot of visibility and also a lot of agency, a lot of decision-making power over those over how those two companies really made their strategic decisions about how to grow their user bases. We got into a lot of the tactics that Facebook especially used to grow. Um, Kat was really involved with their pivotal Facebook developer platform. And so she gets really into the strategy that that company had early on when there were just a few hundred people, but how important developers uh, would be to Facebook's growth and how to make Facebook a true platform. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn there because she even talked about some of the mistakes they made, like waiting too long to put in guidelines, um, the pros and cons of that. She talks about how to uh, do things differently now. You know, If you're building a, a company to compete against Facebook now or you're building any sort of online business now, there's a lot of factors that have changed in the climate both socially and technically, that make building a business uh, very different today than it was when she was working on building Facebook. And she has a really good sense for that. Kat's also a partner at Maverin. Uh, Maverin is a leading early-stage consumer tech company. And so her experience, both in the industry, at places like Facebook and Pinterest, at Pinterest she was the head of culture, so we talk a lot about the kind of cultures you need to create to have a really high growth team. Um, so our experiences both in the industry and as an investor, uh, having been at Maverin, which is one of the leading consumer tech firms, uh, consumer tech venture capital firms, and seeing hundreds of startups a year, makes her a fantastic person uh, to discuss things around growing consumer tech businesses. And she's super smart, super sharp, and constantly smiling. Um, so it was an absolute pleasure, as it is every single time, to speak with Kat. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Kat Lee. Kat Lee. Yeah. Welcome to Hi. the gong. Thank you for having me. I, I love your sweater. Your podcast attire is primo. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It says don't panic. Yep. It says don't panic. Generally good advice for anybody. Absolutely. Especially anybody working in sales. Deals are falling apart. Everything's crashing, but don't panic. Right. But stay mellow. It's kind of my mantra. Yeah. Right? At the end of the day, like it's sort of like just breathe. Don't panic. Yeah. What else is there? Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to lose your head while in the midst of, uh, of the chaos. Yeah, so much of it is that's controlling the chaos. You you spent quite a bit of time in chaos. This was not a segue that I planned, but it's poetic. You 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 do growth, yes. which is chaos. I mean, I I like to think of it as, uh, in some ways, like that kind of chaos fuels me. It's what I'm motivated by. I think that that's the most exciting period of time within any company is when there is that chaos and this sort of like passion as well as. Uh, the like amount of things that you have to do is always more than the people you have. That's always the best time at a company or any any startup. Yeah, M Mark Cuban's got a line that's something along the lines of "sales cures all." 
uh-huh. which is sounds like the similar thing. Like that growth is what people are looking for, and that growth is what drives everything, and that growth is what brings great people inside. Is that you think that's about right? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's a great problem to have, right? If you can, if you are, uh, you know, if you, if you feel behind or if you feel like there's just way too much to do and uh, you can barely hold everything together, it means that you're doing something right. What's the most insane period of growth you've been around or involved in? Um, I think, you know, numerous times, both in terms of when I first joined Facebook and it was early 2008, the platform, the Facebook platform had just launched. We went from building widgets on profiles to enabling the first time that we're allowing you to log into Facebook from across the web and Facebook Connect. And that period of time was incredibly exciting and chaotic because um, you know, my role was to manage FB Fund. It was uh, a set of capital, you know, a pool of capital from Excel and Founders Fund to invest in developers who were building on the platform. And the initial... So even in 2008, Facebook, because Facebook yeah. in 2008 when you joined was smaller than MySpace. Oh, yes. For context, like yes. MySpace was dominant. Yes. And you guys were already leveraging capital to let other people build upon your platform? Yeah. And one of the reasons or the thoughts behind it was that we were not sure that developers would want to build on the platform. And uh, so uh, the, the initial investors, along with Chamath, came up with this idea. I think it was after modeled after the Apple iFund to create a similar program at Facebook to encourage developers to build. But really, uh, developers came and built. And in fact, too many developers came and built. But the, you know, the fund actually helped, you know, from a marketing standpoint, position the platform into inspiring people to understand what are the types of use cases that are, in some ways, the quintessential examples of what it means to, build, to create and take the social graph outside of Facebook. Uh, the iFund, I'm totally guessing, I haven't heard of it before, but it was Apple was investing in startups building apps. Yes. To make the app store more yeah. attractive. Yeah, because they just you know launched their own developer program. And so you said the Facebook FB fund was too successful? You got like people were coming to Facebook with or without you? I mean, it, yeah, I think that in some ways the the fund didn't need it, it was originally developed to incentivize developers to build on the platform. It almost wasn't necessary because people did come to build on the platform. It was just something new, and there was a lot of excitement around these developer communities. There was this like feeling, especially at the very early days, of just being able to quickly get started and build something that was useful and used by millions of people. Um, and then, you know, Facebook did a great job. The platform team did a great job of thinking initially, um, maybe not carefully enough, um, of the distribution channels, which allowed a lot of these this ecosystem of apps to grow. But the fund was helpful in terms of helping position what are the types of companies that we think could be meaningful examples to hold out there as case studies for what this kind of technology or the social graph kind of enables. Yeah. Well, is that where, who was building? What were they, what were they building? Bring me back to 2008. Is this yeah. where like Zynga came in? Like, did they make me play Mafia Wars in Farmville? Was that your fault, Kat? <laughs> were you making me farm carrots and while well, I should have been doing homework? I know. The, <laughs> we, they, there were numerous games, and Zynga and Mafia Wars were obviously part of it. But, um, you know, when we first launched FE Fund, we really wanted to... S think through or see what were the best examples of usage of the social graph. One of the best examples at the time was Zimride. Social graph, can you define oh, that? Oh, yeah. Or? It's the connection of um, you and the and everyone you know, right? It's like who you are connected to socially and then, you know, this computer science-y term of the graph that's the data set that uh, we represented the connection of friendships as a graph, 
And okay, it was so you, called it the social graph. So, so Facebook understood that the core value is understanding how people are going to interact based on who they interact with. Yep. And so you were trying to figure out which kinds of applications, uh, applications are going to help people interact in more of the ways that you want them to. Yeah, because I think at the end of the day, the mission of the platform, or the goal of the platform was to... Um, you know, there, there was a fundamental philosophy or there's a philosophy around we believe the world is better if you're connected to the people you care about. What, you know, if you could take that set of people that you care about and um, have them be a part of your experience on TripAdvisor or, you know, um, in in the case of FE Fund, we funded Zimride, which Zimride were the two people. Is that Lyft? Yes. Zimride, yeah. Yes. There you go, some so, startup history for you. Yeah. They started at Zimride. I think they were doing like busing or something. Yeah. 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 And Zimride was an early FE fundee. Uh, uh, you know, we put in a 125K convertible note. And um, I like to brag that like when they went public, that was worth $50 million. Really? So, um, nice you know, job. <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, I think there were a lot of great examples. TaskRabbit also was one part of it. It's like, where where can you imagine these use cases where if you had a sense of um, uh, understanding of the relationships and how they're connected to you and how that could make the experience of what that application was trying to build better. Um, Zimride started as a carpooling app, right? They were carpooling from here to Santa Barbara or to, to um, you know, down south. And so knowing your friends or friends of friends, it just made it easier for you to make those connections. Same with TaskRapid. Initially, they were sort of a task errand, run, uh, errand running platform and just knowing the people and who you're somewhat connected to socially uh, would help improve that experience. What, what metrics were you guys targeting? Was it like, what did Mark tell you? Hey, Kat, go get me more advertising revenue or more users in the uh, 35 to 55 year old category. Like, what were you trying to grow at the time? What were your, what were the marching orders? Um, so I was on the product marketing team, and I think that the most important thing for us was to try to identify what are these case studies, what are these use cases that can really bring the, you know, can inspire um, hundreds, if not thousands, of apps to be developed. How do we create the ecosystem? And so to create the ecosystem, it was trying to be very strategic about the verticals that we wanted to highlight examples in. Um, you know, we always thought about uh, news being more social. Like, what are the things? Like, what are the stories? What are my friends reading? Yes. What are my friends reading? Who wrote what? Right. Piece? Yeah. And um, and so we thought that and same thing with, with the commenting piece. Like, wouldn't it be great if you could see the comments from your friends on, on that ah, news so, platform? So foolish, really. So yeah. naive. <laughs> wouldn't it be great if comments <laughs> from everybody were visible to yeah. everybody? Well, and your real identity was used. There was like a lot of sort of um, assumptions and sort of hypotheses that were kind of put in place. And like my, our job as a team was to find these examples and activate them. So it was very much in some ways like early partner development where we would reach out to a bunch of sites like CNN, New York Times, and convince them about the power of what social can bring, the distribution channels that were offered by Facebook, and worked with them hand in hand to envision what could this product integration look like? What could it look like to be on the New York Times? And what could it look like to be um, embedded in a TripAdvisor? And it was a sort of small SWAT team of people which had a goal of every F8, which was our annual developers conference, we would surface these great examples across all of these different verticals uh, that would then inspire, hopefully, a whole new set of uh, people to try out the platform. 
How long did you spend at Facebook? I was there for the four years leading up to the IPO, so 2008 to 2012. And they went public right after yeah, you right, left? No, yeah, right. Literally the week after I left. I mean, I obviously I knew yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Was it a cat's gone? We can make this yes, thing happen. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And uh, I saw that, you know, incredible growth in terms of team from 400 people to 4,000 people in four years. And so that was an amazing experience in terms of being able to to see uh, what it took, or at least be a part of something that uh, felt really meaningful, also felt like one of the few companies have that have gone through that type of hyper-growth journey, both internally as well as externally, right? As you mentioned, MySpace was smaller than Facebook when I started. Obviously, when I left, um, Facebook was on its way to you know billions of users. I think 2008 was that year where... MySpace was doing like MySpace had 75 million active users a month. Facebook mm -hmm. had 100 for the whole year. Yep. And then 2009, MySpace was like cut in half, and, yep. and Facebook really began to grow. What was mm -hmm. it like being you at that time? You were you were fairly young in your yeah. career. Mm -hmm. uh, you were at this 400 person company, and all of a sudden it's a 4,000 person company, and you had only aged four years worth of wisdom. Uh, what, what what were some of the biggest challenges that you had growing as a growth? person at, at an environment like that? Um, I mean, I think, you know, I made this transition. So for context, like I, but prior to Facebook, I was in grad school. And prior to that, I worked at Lockheed Martin as a software engineer. So there was like a big sort of shift in terms of cultural shift. But it was what I like yearned for and signed up for because I knew that like Lockheed Martin was not the culture that I wanted to be a part of. They weren't 10x. No, in, no. In and years. it was, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for the company, but at the same time, they were not a high growth startup. And I knew that that was what I signed up for when I crashed the pizza party in grad school to talk to the recruiter and the engineering manager about how much I really wanted to work at Facebook. Um, and then, so when I started, I uh, naturally was, um, I think I, I, I feel like I ended up in the right place at the right time. I joined this amazing team, the platform team, where you know, our team was composed of like Sandra Lu Huang, who ended up being the head of product at Quora and now is at Chan Zuckerberg leading all of product. Um, Mike Vernal, who was also there uh, and he was leading engineering. Charlie Cheever, Josh Elman, Dave Moore. These were all, this was a very special time uh, with amazing people. And I had, uh, you know, I think it, it was a lot of hard work. Everyone worked uh, probably nearly seven days a week. And we worked really long hours, but at the same time, there's this camaraderie and sense of purpose that um, I take with me because there was so much belief in um, what we were trying to do and ourselves and how much agency each person had in order to have that impact and make a difference. You guys were on such a freaking roll during that period of time. Is there anything when you think about your work specifically in growth, any mistakes or any stories that are of... of failed experiments uh, that you remember? So at Facebook, uh, to be clear, there was a growth team, and then there's also this platform team. And, and our version of growth was really developing the ecosystem. And I would say that uh, one of the things that I probably think we uh, one of the things I think we did really well is in um, continuing to drive inspiration, branding, and agency to the community of developers, but where I think we didn't do as well is in managing and anticipating some of uh, the interaction with, with those developers, being a little bit more strategic around thinking through the policies and how uh, developers and what they uh, were incentivized to do could impact 
positively and negatively um, the experience of the overall Facebook users. Uh, so, for example? Oh, for example, I mean, you just mentioned, like, uh, in the early days of the platform, sort of anything went. When we opened up all the distribution channels. We'll fast and break things. Yeah, so happened. there was a lot of spam, right? A lot of buggy experiences and a lot of bad user experiences where you just didn't even know, like, did my friend really do this or not, right? Like... <laughs> you would get all of these sorts of messages. And there wasn't a lot of guidelines at that time in the very early days put on uh, developers to... Uh, and the guidelines and the policies were being developed in real time as developers were building and pushing the boundaries of those policies. Uh, what, what would you advise your... I mean, you're only able to say, these were the mistakes we made, we moved too fast, because, I mean, look what Facebook became. Obviously, a big part of the culture of Facebook's success was that moving fast, making mistakes, trying to fix it as quickly as possible as you went along. What advice would you give to a founder today doing these things? Is it the same thing? Like, hey, it's cool. Like, you're going to make mistakes. It's fine, but fly as fast as you can and, like, make those errors? Or is it, hey, I did that at Facebook. Sure, we grew, but that was an anomaly. Like, move a little bit slower, be a little more thoughtful about these things. I think that the, the consumer sentiment has changed. You know, if I think about the portfolio companies that are within Mavron and even the startup founders that I know today who came out of Facebook or Pinterest or um, all of these sort of unicorns, there's a different way of going about um, building these experiences. The user expectation is a lot higher uh, in terms of the quality. Yeah, people get pissed pretty quick now. Exactly. Yeah. People <laughs> get pissed really quickly. People are, are, you know, it's it's way easier to turn off notifications and not grant not permissions. And I think pe the, the audience, like the, the younger generation, is a lot more aware of the consequences of being always on. So I do think you see a shift in terms of how people develop product. I think people are a little bit more thoughtful, uh, or not even a little bit, a lot more thoughtful, um, and some of that is the platform shift from web to mobile, because I think there's just a higher bar in terms of you, when you are interacting with an app on your phone. You have this level of expectation that the app has been um, developed to a point where uh, there is a lot of accountability if it's not done well, right? Like there are app reviews now. There are no website reviews, really. For Why do you think that? Is that, a, is that because... 12 years to have passed and now now these this ecosystem exists or is that because we feel you know my computer's only there when i want it but my phone's with me there always um i think it's it's probably a lot of factors right it's the factor of um i think it's easier in some ways like it's easier to continue to iterate on web uh versus on mobile there's a little bit more of a barrier to um, iterating as quickly. I do think that the uh, guidelines and sort of the platforms that own like both mobile platforms have like created, have been very thoughtful about the types of apps that get promoted and that, um, that get reviewed and approved. Uh, I also think that there's probably in some ways uh, the consumers, the consumer uh, attitudes towards apps and uh, websites have changed. I do think the quality uh, has evolved um, and the level of thinking has evolved as a result of seeing the consequences and learned lessons from um, not being thoughtful. Yeah, let me test this thesis on you here. Yeah. When uh, when a company is working on a brand new technology, yeah, which is what Facebook was doing with social networking mm -hmm. in two thousand in the mid two thousands, which is what a self driving car company might be doing now, which is what a VR company was doing, you know, maybe four six years ago. When they're working on a brand new technology, the UI is allowed to be lower the expectations of customers are lower because they've never seen anything like it before. Mm -hmm. When a company, and so the way you acquire customers there is just solve some massive problem, go after it, and it's okay for the UI to be a little lower. 
when you're going with a technology that's more developed, such as developing mobile apps today, it's, it's been almost a decade and a half since the iPhone launched, you're, you need to be solving one problem, but the bar you need to set for UI is so, so, so much higher because you're taking customers away from an incumbent. You know, if you're trying yeah. to build a, a service for network today, yes. you're not building a direct Facebook competitor, but your thing for dog owners who like to feed their poodles cool treats, social network, is taking people away from a Facebook group and your UI needs to be at that level. Uh, 10x, probably. 10x. There has to be something very differentiated. And it's not just you know, Facebook. It works in any industry. Like Because Amazon has provided such a great e-commerce experience and uh, it's so easy to buy things and return things on Amazon, it's even harder also for a lot of these D2C companies. They have to provide some sort of other unique differentiator because people are so used to the level of service they get from Amazon. Tell me about it. How does a company compete against an Amazon or a Facebook today? I mean, I think that they have to have, uh, uh, you know, in some ways, they have to compete in a way that Amazon is not. So they have to build some brand affinity, some real, they, they have to understand their customer and provide a level of service that's unique and differentiated. They have to have a product uh, that is really hard to copy. Uh, as well as um, maybe a unique material or a unique value prop that is solving a different customer need than anything that Amazon can do. Um, obviously, the brands within our portfolio, everything from Allbirds, Everlane, Dolls Kill, I think they've they've um, they've really created their brands uh, and retail stores to be an experience, and they really understand their customers in a way that uh, drives that loyalty. Yeah, that's interesting. So the first part I, I especially agree with where you got to know your customer better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's two ways to do this. One is, uh, you know, you mentioned Allbirds, for example. They're a company that just has a better product or different enough product from a Nike mm -hmm. and a different enough distribution channel from an Amazon where Nike's not going to launch a uh, competitor to be at Allbirds necessarily. And Amazon Basics is not going to launch or Amazon Fashion, whatever the thing is called, is not going to launch something that's cooler tree bark shoes or whatever than, uh, than Allbirds. But then you also have the other side of things, and I love this one, where it feels like you are directly competing against Amazon, but you know your customers so damn well that they are, you're going to build services they never even dreamed of having. I think an awesome example of this is like Chegg, the mm -hmm. textbook rental company, right? Yeah. Like textbook rentals, what could possibly be more competitive to Amazon? Mm -hmm. But by only doing this one thing for students, they then went into tutoring and lesson plans and all these other things that students, A, never thought possible, B, Amazon would never give them because for Amazon to do anything right now, they need to get at least another billion dollars in revenue from it. And... Uh, for them to have any, all they're trying to do is serve 80% of customers 80% of the way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, Amazon did try to copy Allbirds. Oh, yeah. In fact, Tell there me. was like a little bit of a dust up. And if you can, like, Google it, Joey went on the record. Joey's uh, Mr. Allbirds himself. Right? Yes. Yeah, Austra yeah, Austra New Zealander, Australian. No, no, no. That's Tim. Oh, that's Tim. So right. Joe, Joey's uh, the co founder. And uh, he. Uh, he basically said that like, if Amazon wants to copy anything, they literally had a shoe that looked like an Allbirds, um, but wasn't made of environmentally friendly materials. So they're like, look, if you're going to copy us, at least copy our, like, the thing that makes us us. Like, yeah, it's, it's not they the, stand for the sustainability. It, yeah. It's not like the, the shoe design itself. It literally is the people love the fact that they're doing good and that uh, when, they, when they wear Allbirds. Uh, it, is, you know, it, started out, it is a comfortable shoe, but beyond being a comfortable shoe, um, they really like what Allbirds stands for and that they're a carbon-neutral company. Yeah. And so Joey's like, you know, if you're going to copy us, copy that. Over the last 12 years or so that you worked in tech, how much do you think the 
the importance of the marketing of marketing the mission has grown. I mean, you mentioned Allbirds. It's not just the shoe. It's the Mm-hmm. vision of what buying shoes like this might possibly stand for. Glossier is the same thing. It's not, mm-hmm. their, their makeup is not better necessarily than anybody else's, but it's it's what it means to buy makeup from them. Was that the same thing 12 years ago? And, and yes or no, how can a startup take advantage of that today? Um, it's certainly not true 12 years ago. I definitely think that you see that if you look at all the sort of consumer uh Understanding consumer behaviors, it has shifted over the last few years, and it's definitely more true with millennials and even more true with Gen Zers, uh, where they are looking for companies that align with their own personal values and their own personal mission and things they care about. So more and more, I think we're going to see companies continuing to um, understand what are their own set of authentic values and how do they um, cultivate an audience that uh, understands that and um, uh, and and at the same time it, it brings them uh, some ways loyalty from that audience uh, because they resonate with the personal values. But uh, that being said, I think people know that this is like a consumer behavior shift, behavioral shift that many big brands have also tried to do this and have tried to do this in a way N- that Nike's doing a lot of that right now yeah. with the Colin Kaepernick yeah, thing. Yeah, and, and I actually think Nike's doing a pretty good job with it. I'm just saying, like, you know, maybe I don't want to call out any brands, but you can definitely find the Oh, let's examples. call them out. This is we, we strike beef on the Gong podcast. <laughs> I mean, you know, you could take Gillette, right? And Gillette tried to do that commercial. You the take the best a man can be. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, and I think you have like you know, the the uh, I remember there was a quote from the head of Unilever announced at Cannes Lions this year where the, he was just like, um, they're going to look at their portfolio of brands and anyone that doesn't have a set of values that are correlate and authentic to them, they're going to get rid of them because it's so important to the next generation. Yeah. But I think it's so important to make sure that it is authentic. And I, I think that the older brands are going to struggle to find that voice. How, how can a small company, let's take this super small, you know, if you're a, if you're a Unilever, and your marketing budget is is uh, the size of you know a, a mid market company's revenues for a year. Yeah, you can you can do that. You can experiment and say, hey, let's see how what this whole purpose thing is about, and see if it works for us. If you're 10, 20, 50 people, and you're doing half a million to five million dollars in revenue, uh, how do you see companies or heads of growth or CEOs yeah. struggling with this balance of like? We're just got to survive until tomorrow, let alone this whole mission thing versus on the other side of the spectrum, like we are the mission, the mission is us, we want to tell it, tell it to the world. I mean, there's no one right way to do it. I mean, what I've seen um, some of our portfolio companies who are around that size do, that they do really well, is some people take a very community-based approach, like a community-driven approach, where in some ways we we call it like high-tech with high-touch. You kind of have to bring the two together in order to find your people, find the messages that resonate with them, and then build off of that. Um, at the same time, you know, you can't just, it, it, you know, messaging and branding can only take you so far. You have to have a product that meets that need, right? And uh, that yeah, aligns, otherwise you're, right? Otherwise, you're yoga babble. Exactly. You're just uh, yes, changing the world and making totally, the world a better yes. place. But what do you what do And you there doing? is a lot of that, too, yeah. right? There's a lot of that, too. And um, I think you have to validate that you have a really good product that um, meets that need that actually has sort of word of mouth growth because it's such a good product that stands for itself. Um, the evolution that we like to tell our founders is you start with a really great product that fits a consumer need. In the case of Allbirds, the world's most comfortable shoe. They own that. Um, they can then build a brand on top of it because they've earned the right to build that brand. And then beyond that, they then earn the right to build a movement, which is around sustainability and 
Um, and I think you see that with that progression with a lot of different companies. So for an early startup, the most important thing is find your playbook for finding and understanding your customer, um, building proof points to know that this playbook is going to continue to help you scale. And then um, at the same time, hopefully you have the product and technology that actually makes it scale. And I would say, if I think back to the Pinterest playbook, that was the Pinterest playbook too. Um, you know, Pinterest started out as this, I mean, in some ways it's a, it's a content marketplace um, of a collection of things that people have curated and pinned from the web and start off as a website. But the technology existed, but there was no community there. And it was only until Ben reached out to um, a set of bloggers uh, at the Blog Her conference in Utah, where he sort of built this community of bloggers that understood the platform. They all had sort of similar interests. It started out with um, this woman, Victoria, who runs the blog SF Girl by Bay, uh, and she uh, blogged about home decor and created a board called What Home Means to Me and started this campaign around other tagging other bloggers, getting them to do the same. But it was this community of bloggers that knew each other both online were and they in paid real life. Or were they no, doing this it was just completely because because I think they really liked the product and then saw that it was this kind of cool way of um, visually organizing um, what inspires them, and that was the start of the Pinterest community. And I do think that playbook that was used in the very early days was continued to be used as we launched into new markets and to different you know, in, into different countries where Pinterest, you know, whether that was in the UK or in, um, you know, in Japan, there was always this sort of similar start of finding a set of influencers, bloggers, people who had taste uh, that was very local to that market to curate a lot of the initial uh, boards that would then sort of help uh, start the marketplace within that market. You know, Pinterest was recently called the nicest company in the valley. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I might have seen that article. It was yeah. related to culture too. Yeah, you guys are so nice. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I think that um, at the very, you know, what's funny is that in the very beginning, it used to I think irk us <laughs> a little bit because it's like because well, you want to be like a, you're competing against Facebook and Google. You, you're all brilliant people, and you're all trying to fight for yeah growth and things. And but I think that. Um, you know, I would say a lot of the culture comes from our founders, and our, it starts with the founders, I should say, and then it evolves over time. And and Ben and Evan are are at the very, you know, to their core, they're just incredibly genuine, authentic, nice people. You, so you at Pinterest went from doing growth to doing culture. Yes. Right. What does a, a successful growth culture look like? If I'm a early stage CEO or had a growth or had a sales at a again, let's call it a fifty person company and I'm trying to get to 200, what should I be thinking about when forming my team? I mean, at the very beginning, it is about, um, I mean, I think that you, it, that question, or the answer to that question should change, or it changes over time, because as you continue to grow and scale, your challenges and things that uh, you're, you're trying to accomplish change over time. Um, at the very beginning, I think it's about trying to be deliberate about uh, building the product, right? So in the very early days, it was very much focused on how do you create that initial product? How do you get to that product market fit? What shows that you have product market fit? Um, and then, you know, at the point that I joined Pinterest, it was 35 people. We had just started um, the first version of the growth team. So it was, at the very beginning, instrumenting, well, what 
is growth? Like, what are the things that we're choosing to measure? What drives engagement? And how do we uh, quantify that or articulate that in a way that aligns the company into understanding um, what we want to focus on over the next few years? What, what are some of the things you guys landed on? I mean, at the very beginning, it was... So Pinterest started as a website, and I think 2012 was our transition from web to mobile. So at the very beginning, uh, it was about understanding how are people coming to Pinterest, and we went from uh, invite only to opening it up so that anybody could sign up. So that was like our first big transition. And then after that, it's like... Sorry, why were you invite only at first? Uh, I think, so a couple reasons. And actually, it served very much, was a very successful, deliberate des decision. So initially, I think that invite only was created to ensure that the right set of content was getting curated. I think that in some ways, by making it invite only, it also created demand for the product and allowed the product to grow very organically via word of mouth. Because it was invite only and because it was sort of continued to be shared by bloggers, um, people in the blogging community, a lot of them knew each other and they heard about it and everybody started asking for how do I get an invite? So there was some virality that was built in to it being invite only. Um, it also makes you want to be a part of a thing. My, my girlfriend was telling me that her friend of hers today who spent a year on a wait list for a wine club uh -huh. just got off the wait list. Right. Doesn't really need any wine. Yes. But decided to buy a $160 bottle of wine because if she doesn't buy a bottle a month, she has to wait another year because she's put on the wait list again. Oh, no. So she's like, whatever. Yes. Let me just buy the thing. Yes. I spent time. You, yeah, there you, made you go. You it into the club. Exactly. Yes. And I do think that there's... A tricky growth people, okay? I mean, there's a lot of benefits, too. <laughs> like, there, there's that. There's the, there's the FOMO kind of psychological piece of invite only. But then I do think that, like, from a platform standpoint, it made it uh, a lot more of... Uh, it, made it, it made it a better experience. Because this is where, uh, you know, going back to the Facebook discussion, the initial developer platform was open to everyone. And so when you're open to everyone, there's a long tail of good apps and bad apps, like really bad apps, like bad apps that I would be embarrassed to share about because they, they did terrible things. And, um, and I think the Apple App Store, by being such a closed platform, you know, they had control over what was on the platform and what wasn't. By being invite only, I think similarly, Pinterest was able to create a beautiful experience for users, and which was consistently delivering value to a certain subset of users. But there was enough control there that, you know, it was a lot more deliberate than if everybody was allowed on the platform. Do you think your trajectory would have been different, or how would your trajectory have been different if you were never invite only? Is it, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of somebody uh, again at the smaller company now oh, wow, cool, Pinterest is invite only, great idea, maybe we should do it. On the one hand, you get to be more controlling of your user group, you get to say, hey, we're only gonna grow at this rate, hey, we only wanna, we, we're getting this kind of individual, let's build the tools for this kind of individual and not serve individual B. But on the other hand, it does limit your exposure to spontaneous eruption, right? Like, yeah. oh my God, out of nowhere came this group yes. of people and we, you couldn't have that if you were invite only. Well, especially if you're a small team, I think that, uh, like in the Facebook case, on the developer uh, platform case, I mean, a small team of people firefighting 24 hours on the customer service side trying to like help prevent spam, message users, and there was always this queue that was like never ending. Um, so the team was too small to truly like do that. 
So invite-only, there's never a right answer to this question because it's a matter of, well, what does invite-only enable you to do? Well, given the size of your team and how limited the support is, invite-only allows you to control your growth. And what does that enable you to do? Well, if the product's not totally there, then it gives you more time to continue to improve upon the features so that you can create the right MVP. It also creates the right norms so that you can figure out who is this working for, who is it not working for. And so it gives you some um, visibility into the customer segments and it gives you more confidence as you're going into raising your next round or as you're thinking about like um, how do I continue to scale this, you know your, which customer segments it's working for. You can then go talk to them. You can then enlist them to become moderators on your platform and get them more involved. And what that does from a product perspective, especially if you're building a marketplace or a platform, is it creates the right norms so that the next person, like the next hundredth person, thousandth person who comes in, they're like, oh, I get what this platform is for. So the downside is if you do that too deliberately, sometimes you don't um, open yourself up to um, new use cases. So in the case of Pinterest, I would say that uh, to a certain extent, maybe we waited a little too long to open up invite only because a lot of the early audience were women who had very similar interests, um, food, home decor, you know, uh, quintessentially, especially back then, uh, DIY, Weddings. Um, yeah, isn't it now like eighty percent of Midwestern women between the ages of twenty and fifty are Pinterest users? I mean, early on, <laughs> yeah. sure, yeah, and I think now it's a little bit more balanced. But I think that in the very early days, while it was built, we were building and continuing to grow and grow engagement via word of mouth. We kept it invite only until twenty twelve, uh, and then twenty twelve when we opened it up, you know, it, it was then opened up to everyone. But then because we weren't deliberate about bringing on different segments of users, uh, it was a terrible experience for any guy signing up the platform because I think it was very hard to control like who they should follow. If they searched for anything like black shoes, it'd probably get a bunch of high heel results. Do you um, think, do you think, that, that brings an interesting question. Do you think that the product and the team, going back to when you said your customer service team was too small to grow, do you think the product and the team should be one step ahead of growth? Or should growth be one step ahead of the product or the team? What I mean is, is it the would you advise now the companies that you work with at Mavrun to say, hey, don't worry about it, like grow, go get those male users even if your product isn't ready yet, or take down the invite only, like you'll hire customer or your customer service people work extra hard for two months, and then don't worry about it, like we'll hire great people, or is it the other way, like you always want your product to be one step ahead of your user? I think if you, you know, the ideal case is like if you're a part of a hyper growth startup and that's what you aim to be, you always want to hire ahead of where you are. Um, and you also want to plan ahead for when you're going to need that set of people because especially if you're looking for really great people, uh, it's not going to be... They're not available. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever you need them. So be very strategic about who you're looking for and who you're hiring for ahead of when you need them. Um, and then, uh, you know, hopefully it's also a great problem to have if you happen to grow way more than, um, than you can handle uh, because that's the chaos. So th it's never one or the other. Uh, it's bad if you have a bunch of people and like the growth isn't there. <laughs> so there's always this balance between um, doing both of those things. Yeah. Well, what kind of advice do you give the uh, the startups you work? By the way, at Maverick, what what kind of stage do you invest in now? Uh, we invest in Series A and Seed. So so really early companies. Yeah, very early. What kind of advice do you give them around pricing? Uh, and I'll ask that in two ways. The first is back when we were talking about mission, can you price mission 
or can you put, make mission a part of the calculation of your price and say, you know, my shoes would normally sell for a hundred bucks, but since I'm shoes made from tree bark and, and I'm not only comfortable, but environmentally friendly, I'm going to charge 120. Like, can you, can mission, can that ethos be part of the price? A, but B, how early do you want your super early companies right now, Seed Series A, to be thinking about the economics of their model? There's been a lot of stuff back in the 90s when economics didn't matter. But even now, you know, Casper just went public and they're super, super in the red and their stock went down immediately. Uh, WeWork busted because of all that other stuff. Uber and Lyft have been struggling a ton. Um, most companies, most tech companies that went public in the last year, Pinterest and many others included, are not profitable. How early do you guys push your portfolio companies to think about the economics and the, and the viability of their pricing models? Well, I would say that we can't control the macro market, uh, and I would say that the sentiment of, of the, the market has shifted um, from growth and growth at all costs to uh, thinking about sustainable growth and having a path to profitability. And so I do think that as that shift is happening, what you're seeing is that a lot of companies are being a lot more thoughtful in how they communicate and really start to work on uh, that path to profitability. And so I would say that um, you know, in, in, in the very earliest of stages, I think we want to, uh, I mean, it's, it doesn't, it's obviously generally not there. But um, at the very earliest of stages, it's something that we talk with the founder about and just how they're thinking about the unit economics. So coming back to your uh, question about pricing, um, you know, we want them to be thoughtful as to where they are and why they've made the decisions they made and then think through how over time there is a plan towards getting it the company to a place where uh, it will be really attractive to new investors as well as eventually, hopefully, the public markets. Um, and I think as they continue to go down the path of later and later stage, um, they need to be a lot more thoughtful about it because they need to have um, predictability around um, that story uh, to future investors. Yeah. And what about how do you how do you price for mission? How do you price for purpose? Can um, you price for purpose? I think that you know in a vacuum, that's that question is not super relevant because in in some ways it kind of depends on. Um, you know, the cost of the materials and everything else that goes and how they're reaching their customers. Um, and then it's something that I think that they have to test uh, on like, uh, you know, it, like I said, it's more like looking at the landscape, what are their competitive products and how are they priced and, and where do you fall relative to that and how, do you position, how are you positioned compared to those products and what type of customers are you going for? So it's really hard to know how to do the pricing yeah. in the back. The, the, the reason I ask is because when we were making the comparison between Allbirds and Nike, you know, Nike can do all this purpose-driven stuff, but then people still throw a riot and say, ah, but you have child labor in your factories, which is a whole another complicated issue. But, you know, they might talk about purpose, price super low, but have some, some purpose issue, whereas another company might say, uh, hey, we only build in very fancy American factories where everybody works an eight-to-four job and, and, and is super... Well taken care of. Can you price higher for things like that? I mean, I would say that you also have a company like Everlane to give you another example where it's completely transparent to the consumer what how pricing is done, right? Like they literally um, on their website, it's about um, transparency of the supply chain. So they tell you exactly how much this is, this is costs, and then they add a standard markup. So you see that, 
And that's how, that's their commitment and their, uh, with their consumers. Yeah. So there's no one right way to do things, but I do think that you're starting to see like really interesting um, business models and ways of pricing that, um, that seem uh, more aligned with, I think, what, what the new consumer is looking for. Well, what are some of the coolest companies you're, you're investing in right now? Wh which ones have you invested in that you're excited about? Um, well, let's see, that I can announce. Well, I, I would say that in general, um, I mean, a lot of our companies in our portfolio are, are really exciting. Uh, not, they're not all done by me personally, but done by Mavron. Most recently, we announced um, funding in Otis. It's a company based in New York. They are trying to build the NASDAQ of cultural assets. Ooh, what does that mean? So it's this idea that um, most of us, ha I mean, each generation has um, sort of put money in into an asset class. Uh, like you have stocks, and Robinhood has made that a lot easier for you to invest via mobile into stocks. Um, they believe that this new generation of people, millennials and Gen Zers, have an understanding of what is culturally relevant and valuable. Um, so they do these um, these drop, drops, and you can create a portfolio of shares into these items. So an example of their first drop was a Kahinde Wiley painting. Uh, they, he was the portrait artist of the Obamas, and um, you can buy at $25 a share um, a piece of owning this painting. Um, and they do a really great job explaining this uh, sort of cultural asset as well as um, uh, how much it's going for, what price per share, and then how many investors are in it. But the idea around it, or the inspiration, so aside from artwork, which they so have... So wait, that, that, yeah. that one's super interesting. I've never heard of anything like that. So for that specific example, um, this person might drop a painting and say, hey, uh, I want it to be valued at $25,000. I'm releasing 1,000 shares at 25 bucks each. You can buy it. And then later, if it's sold for 50 grand, your shares just went up. You could buy, sell as yes, time goes on. exactly. Super cool. Yes, and then... Can you do that with any asset? Like, can you do that with a... With a with a song or... So the company owns the assets themselves. Otis owns the assets. They bought them outright. Uh, and what's great about it is if you are a shareholder of any of their... Uh, so aside from Kahini Wiley, they have a cause painting. They have um, Supreme skateboards. They have um, f you know Air Jordans, Birkin bags, everything. They have a lot of different items. And um, there's an experience or a, a sort of a, a space for all of these items in Brooklyn. And you can go and they host events in the space. So you can also be a part of this sort of experience. I've always wanted to touch a Birkin bag. Yeah. yeah. So, Such an honor. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's what I, I think that the founder, Michael, he had this sort of inspiration around helping um, people have the portfolio of a billionaire. All these alternative assets that none of us have access to, or many of us, I shouldn't none of us, <laughs> many of us who aren't billionaires have access to, you can now own a piece of it because it's culturally relevant and meaningful to you. Um, and so I think it's kind of an interesting take on, uh, in, on investing. And what kind of questions do you ask somebody like that about what their plans for growth are? I uh, would love to understand better the kinds of questions you ask these portfolio companies or, or companies that you're looking at doing your due diligence and also how you think about giving advice with all your experience but all the uncertainties that an early stage company is going through. Well, I mean, in this case, it is somewhat, I mean, of a marketplace and um, y there's the supply piece and how they're acquiring that supply and un understanding like what is going into uh, 
how they make those decisions on acquiring this kind of an artwork or that kind of a bag, like why those items? And then what's where do they get access to, to more of that supply? Um, and then what's their sort of unique differentiated strategy of finding those items? So you're just helping them, you're just making sure they're thinking clearly about these kinds of things. Yeah, and that they have um, some unique insight into being able to acquire them either uh, before anyone else can or in a way that uh, is uh, differentiated from other kind of platforms that can do this. And then similarly, I think that the, the biggest challenge here is about driving demand. How are they going to... Um, Make me buy $25 yeah, worth of a painting. Exactly, and educate. Like, and, and have they done that already? So when they raised their A, they actually did their first drop, um, and they were able to sort of show that they were able to get, you know, I think 600, more than 600 investors, and many of them were non-accredited um, to buy into this because of the cultural significance and people wanting to be a part of this movement. To the extent that you're able to share uh, or want, want to share, what are some of the things that they want to do to be able to grow that user base? Because I imagine that's super complicated, right? You've got to teach people about how they're... It's an investment. So they're saying, all right, can I buy $25 of this or $25 rather General Motors? And <laughs> which mm -hmm. one's going to make me more money? General Motors, I know, I trust, I get it. Birkenbags, what the heck does that even mean? So you're educating on that class. You're educating them about... Uh, just the fact that there's, you know, a friend of a friend tells somebody, word of mouth. So what, what, how do they begin to think about growth? Um, so I, I think that there's a couple different aspects of things, right? Like I think they've done a really great job of, um, in some ways, building, uh, so going back to like um, creating some urgency, that each of these drops or each of these items are done in a drop fashion. So when they first released Otis, you could sign up at, for the wait list to get notified of the drop. The drop happens. Um, prior to that drop, I think they had a VIP um, part of that. So, so you they built up that urgency, that FOMO already pretty baked in there. Yeah, and then they found... They put me on the wait list. They yes, did that age-old trick. Yes, they <laughs> did. Put you on the wait list. And also they, they, they kind of had a white glove service for their VIP members. Um, and they, you know, as you signed up for the wait list, uh, the SEC requires that you fill out a lot of stuff so that they can, you know, so that it's, it's, it's not the easiest process right now. But at the same time, like, I think they did a great job working with the SEC to enable this. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, from that set, they cultivated a VIP set. Um, and, uh, you know, in the very beginning of any sort of community or platform or uh, service, like, it, it's a very hands-on, high-touch way of growing that user base or that, that consumer base. And, um, and I think they did a great job doing that. Well, hi. This podcast is brought to you by Otis, <laughs> uh, the un unpaid for advertisements of the NASDAQ of cultural assets. Uh, no, that, that, is, that is really awesome. Uh, Kat, it's totally up to you. We can chat for another three hours, which I can happily do. <laughs> Um, or because I think you got I some think, stuff going yes, on. I think, yes, I do. I have some drinks uh, that I have to catch up with a friend on. I would hate to delay that anymore. This has been a ton of fun. Kat, where, where can people find out more about you, about Maverin, uh, and everything you got going on? Yeah, on our website, um, or uh, happily follow me on Twitter, and um, ha I, I've met the best people through Twitter DMs. What's your uh, what's, what's It's Catley Catley. Catley Catley? Yeah. Beautiful. Catley. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Cat Lee, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to learn more about Cat, check her out on Twitter at Cat Lee, Cat Lee. Uh, Lee is spelled L E E. Or find Maverin, the venture capital fund, 
and what they're working on at maverin.com. And if you like what you heard today, leave us a review and a rating. It is so, so helpful. Or you can find me all over the interwebs, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at A Lubarski2. Happy selling.